I read a story yesterday that put me in tears when I was done. It was a man who was born in 1832, and he died in 1905. He was 73 years old when he died. His name, James Hudson Taylor. And I'll bet you if you mentioned that name to any missionary in China, they'd recognize that name because he was the founder of the China Inland Mission Ministry. And he gave 51 years. So he started in his early 20s. He gave 51 years of service, putting together the infrastructure. And that ministry is still in effect today, but it's under a different name. 51 years in ministry. He built schools, he built churches, and he led thousands of people to Christ. <laughs> and as I stop to think about that, I've got the heart of an evangelist. Most of my ministry has been evangelism. It's not been pastoral, although God has gifted me in that area as well, but it's been evangelist. Get me on the street. <laughs> Get me with people. That's where I want to be. God just graces me to know what to do in situations like that. It is truly a gift. And so I, I appreciate when I was reading this, and I just I happened to stop and think about it for a little bit. Towards the end of his life, he said, if I had 1,000 lives to live, he said, I would give them all for China. And the Lord took me back to the times when I had did a couple of 40-day fasts. It was a Holy Ghost thing, really. You don't want to do it without the Holy Spirit leading you into things like that. And it was in those 40-day fasts that I found myself praying, of course. You don't want to fast without praying. They, they just go hand in glove, don't they? <laughs> Otherwise, you'll just be hungry all the time. It's that praying. And you, and you find out when you begin to pray while you're fasting like that, you, you'll begin to discover what the fast is for. Because God doesn't always tell you going into it what it's all about. <laughs> you'll find out, though. You'll find out just simply by virtue of what you're praying about. And I found myself crying out for people I had never met, souls uh, that I knew I would meet someday and I would lead to Jesus. And, of course, uh, I've had that privilege and pleasure over the years, having worked and served in the Life Center uh, over those five years and probably seen two or three hundred people personally come to Jesus under that ministry and the thing I discovered is after those 40-day fasts were over with, what I discovered is I felt kind of in a natural realm what they were feeling in the spiritual realm, people that don't know Jesus. Emptiness, pain, distraction. Oh, believe me, go for 40 days one time. You'll feel emptiness. You'll feel pain. And you'll feel distraction. You're always thinking about different things. But I want to tell you what, it's the power of God that sustained me. During an especially trying time in that missionary's life, he sat down one day and he wrote a letter to his wife. They were from England. And in that letter, he wrote this. He said, I have 25 cents to my name and all the promises of God. Oh, man, are you kidding me? I'd rather have 25 cents to my name and all the promises of God than be a billionaire and have no promises. How about you? Do I get a witness in here? Amen. Amen. Because, see, God, it, it ain't nothing for him to come up with some money. He owns everything. And when I read that, my heart just rejoiced. I mean, my, I was just overwhelmed. My heart was running rampant and crazy. And I thought, Lord, how in the world could that be? And I'll tell you how it is. His heart was marinated in the promises of God. 
His heart was marinated in the promises of God. We need to marinate our heart in the promises of God so that when tough times come, and they do, they knock once in a while, you know how to respond in situations like that. So I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message that I'm calling the certainty of God's promise. And one of the things I want us to really see in this message today is that the Abrahamic covenant was a pattern for our covenant. His covenant was a pattern for our covenant. The covenant we're under is a grace covenant, a Jesus covenant. But it's very similar to the Abrahamic covenant because both of those covenants were covenants that were unconditional and they were covenants of faith. They were unconditional covenants. Did you know that you're under an unconditional covenant? That's where God has placed you in an, and I'll explain that in a minute, an unconditional covenant, and it was by faith alone. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, we begin by this. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Now, I got to stop and comment on this. Because when I read that, and I've read that so many times, it just seems so weird that God has to swear by anything. In other words, I'm not talking about cussing, but I'm talking about an oath, where God has to swear an oath. Isn't God's word all by itself just good enough? Why would he have to say, I have to swear an oath? When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. You see Abraham come on the scene in the 11th chapter of Genesis. It just talks about his genealogy, his lineage, how he came down through. And then as you step over into Genesis chapter 12, right away, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 and 3, you begin to see God put all the promises of God what on Abraham. Right away, right out of the gate, he begins to get blessed like crazy. God begins to tell him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. He begins to tell Abraham all these awesome things he's going to do for him. Abraham is like you, and he's like me. He's always wanting confirmation that God will keep his word. He's wanting confirmation that God will keep his word. And so God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to bring some animals. This is in Genesis chapter, I believe it's 15. He said, Abraham, I want you to bring some animals for a sacrifice. And he brings a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. Kind of five animals. Five is the number for grace, of course. <laughs> he brings these five animals, and he cuts them in two and lays them on the altar. Now, in those days, I mean, when you went into a covenant with someone, it was serious business. You didn't do that lightly, and you kept that covenant forever. And here's the amazing thing. When you would lay them on the altars, what you would do then is the two people that were making the covenant would walk down through the pieces, and that's how you would establish the covenant. You'd walk, I mean, there was more to it than that, but you would walk down through these pieces of meat that had been cut, and you would establish the covenant. But the interesting thing is, if you read Genesis chapter 15, God put Abraham asleep. The Bible says this deep darkness fell on Abraham and he went to sleep. That was God doing that. You see, because God still walked down through the, the cut animals as he was cutting this covenant with Abraham. He still walked down through them. 
when two people would walk down through them, the covenant was, I'm going to keep my part of the covenant, you keep your part of the covenant. And so God was basically saying, we can't have that. We can't have that because you're a man, you can mess up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cause you to fall asleep. And the Bible says he appeared as, a, I think, a smoking pot and a, like a flaming torch. I mean, I don't even know what that looked like, but that must have been awesome. <laughs> that must have been awesome. And God walked down through the cut meat and cut the covenant with Abraham. Do you see what's happening? This is, this is imagery of God cutting a covenant with Abraham that's unconditional. And Abraham cannot mess up. Now, don't you think for a moment that the shedding of Jesus' blood, I mean, listen, if they could do that with animals, don't you think the shedding of Jesus' blood is much more precious than that? I sure do. And at late last night, as I was thinking about this, when, the, when God told the Apostle Paul, when he said, my grace is sufficient, I kind of got that revelation. That's right. <laughs> that is all I need, isn't it? See, what he was reminding him of is the covenant I have with you is unconditional. It's a covenant of grace, and that's all you need. It's sufficient. My grace is sufficient. And so, what God says here, he says, when God made his covenant to Abraham, since there was no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. And I stepped back and I said, wow. You know what? We need to get into the habit. We need to get into the habit of realizing God wants to surely bless me. You know, I would pray that you would wake up every single day going, God wants to bless me. And you know what? That message has been tumbling in my heart for a long time, several years now, that I can wake up every single day and I can go, God wants to bless me. I really believe that. I've got the audacity to believe that. God wants to bless me. See, I'm under a similar covenant now. And God said to Abraham, Abraham hasn't done anything for God. See, that's the beauty. He hasn't done a thing for God yet. And God came right out of the chute saying, Abraham, I'm going to greatly bless you. <laughs> the word surely, by the way, is the word in the Greek called main. It's spelled actually M-E-N, like men but it's pronounced main. It's where we get our Greek word, amen. And that's the way the Southern folks say it. Brother, amen. But it's amen. Surely and amen. Surely and main. The exact same word. They come from the same root word. Get used to being blessed by God because the word amen means so be it. It means surely, surely, or truly, truly, or truth, truth. That's what it means. And God said, Abraham, surely I will bless you. I'm going to bless you. You have the blessing on your life? You got the blessing on your life. I'm going to bless you, he says. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, we see the words, Give, and it shall be given unto you. And God tells you, good measure, pressed down and shaken together. It's kind of like when you guys packed for the mission trip. I'm sure you, you pressed it down in your little suitcases. Judy, you went. You pressed it down in your little suitcases so that you can get as much in there as possible. And when God says, I'm going to bless you, pressed down and shaken together and running over. And then watch what he says. Shall men, shall men, mean, shall men give into your bosom? He says, for with the same measure that you meet with all, in other words, he says, when you see a need, meet it. 
When you see a hurt, heal it. He's saying, listen, with that same measure that you meet, it shall be measured back to you again. You don't even have to look for opportunities to bless people. You don't have to look for opportunities to be blessed by God. They'll come. They'll just supernaturally appear. And I want you to know something. Blessing someone, given and it shall be given unto you, is so much larger than money. In fact, money would probably be way, way down there. It's not just money. You know, there are people that need a touch. They don't need a word from you. They just need a touch. There are other people that don't need to be touched, and they just need a word. There are people that need a prayer. There are people that need a smile. There's people that need a scripture. There's people that need a a story. There's people that need a real you that they can identify with. They need all kinds of things. Just, you know, as we go, don't be so busy with our own agenda to miss the opportunities of God because they'll keep knocking. They'll come knocking left and right. On Thursday afternoon, I got a text message from a person I met one time. (laughs) One time. That's what you get for giving your phone number out, I guess. And he said, you know, I'm really embarrassed about this, but man, he said, I get a check once a month. (laughs) You see it coming, don't you? I get a check once a month. Oh, man, he said, you know, we're totally out of gas. We have no gas for our automobile. I've got to take my wife to a doctor's appointment. There's other running we have to do. Can I just get a little gas from you? I said to the Lord, Lord, what do you say about this? He said, do you have the ability to meet that need? I said, yeah. He said, would it really change your life? I said, no. See a need? Fill it. You don't need to call up somebody and go, can I get a witness on this? This guy needs some gas money. You don't need to do that. We we just put too much religion in stuff, don't we? And so I told him when I got off work, I texted him back. I said, meet me at such and such gas station. I'll take care of this need. And all the way driving there, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, don't let him pull up with an SUV. I'm just being honest with that. That flashed in my head, and I thought, you know what? It doesn't matter if he pulls up with a bus. I'm going to bless him. You know, it doesn't matter. And so he was already waiting for me when I got there, and he had just a little car. I mean, I mean, it wasn't much bigger than that piano right there. I mean, it was a pretty small car. And I'm, you know what? It took $23 to fill up that little car, and it was dry. Thank God for low gas prices. I didn't think much about it. You know, I just hugged him and, and ministered to him a little bit at the gas pump as we were standing there. The next morning, I got called in to a a meeting by the owner of my company, and he said, I want to give you a bonus. The bonus was more than $23. The bonus was $1,400. I'm paid very well for what I do. I'm blessed in what I do. And I didn't think about it. I didn't connect at all. The Bible says, give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure. And God is not slow. His arm is not short, and his hand is not closed. Get used to being blessed. The Bible says, he said to Abraham, I will surely bless you. I'm going to bless you. Verse 16. It says, people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. In other words, why did God make that oath? He didn't do it for himself. He wasn't worried about backing out of his word. He goes on to say, I cannot lie. He said it's impossible for God to lie. So he didn't make that oath because he was afraid he was going to change his mind. He made that oath for Abraham's benefit. 
Because Abraham understood the power of an oath. He understood that that was a covenant. And he understood the power of it. And you wouldn't break that. A man wouldn't break it with another man, much less God break it with a man. So he, it gave him such awesome assurance. And it's there to the, the Bible says, for our benefit, that we can see that God is a covenant-keeping God. He wanted Abraham to know for sure. Verse 18 says, God did this so that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. What does this word immutable mean? Unchangeable. Irreversible. When God made that promise to Abraham, it is irreversible. I mean, it doesn't matter how high the tide gets, it is irreversible. It's irreversible. It's irreversible. What are the two immutable, irreversible things? They are his covenant and his oath to bless. It's his covenant. You can't change his covenant. We look at those scriptures and say, well, the two immutable things is God, that God cannot lie. No, God cannot lie, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is I cannot reverse my covenant with you, and I cannot reverse my oath that I've given you. These are two irreversible things, God says, they cannot change. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now, who's behind that curtain? The high priest. Where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I talked about him two weeks ago when I preached. He has become the high priest. If you understand the, the function of a high priest, oh man, I, can't, I don't want to get off on this because I, it's not where I'm going, but just suffice it to say, in the temple where he stood, in the Holy of Holies, there were no chairs. The high priest never sat down. The Bible says his job was never done. His job was never complete. He never got to sit down on the job. He was always standing. That's the way God set it up. But when Jesus, when Jesus shed his blood at Calvary, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the Father, indicating he is the priest forever. And because of the change of priest, there's a change in how we do things. He sat down, the Bible says, at the right hand of the Father, indicating it's a finished work. It's a finished work. And then as we step over to Hebrews chapter 7, the Bible says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And remember, Melchizedek is a, a pre-incarnate Christ, or at least a type and shadow of Christ. So when you see him, you see, you, you're basically you're looking at Jesus. And the Bible says, Abraham and him met coming back from the defeat of the kings. And the Bible says that Melchizedek blessed him. And then, right after that, it says Abraham gave a tenth of everything he had. You see, we get this mindset, if I give, God's going to bless me. No, God blesses you so you can give. And it doesn't matter how you give. It's not, like I said, it's not always about money. It's about many different ways. Doing something nice for somebody. Doing something kind for somebody. Doing something that they can't pay you back in return. <laughs> That's giving. That's the truest index of giving. 
is when you give and they can't give back. That guy stood at the pump and he told me, he says, oh, he said, I'll pay you back on, on the first when I get my check. And I just looked at him, put my hand on his chest, and I said, friend, it's a gift. You don't have to worry about paying me back. It's a gift. That's what grace looks like, friends. The Bible says he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so he blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First of all, the name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Who's that starting to sound like? King of righteousness. And where is he from? He's from Salem, the Bible says. And of course, Salem, as I said a couple weeks ago, literally means peace. The word Salem comes from the word shalom, which means peace. So the Bible says about him, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. So you have righteousness and then peace. Do you see how the order is? You have righteousness and then peace. That harmonizes perfectly with the gospel of grace. It's righteousness and then peace. In Psalm chapter 85, verse 10, the Bible says, Mercy and truth are together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Oh man, are you kidding me? Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness and peace get along, don't they? Isn't that wonderful? They get along. You don't kiss people you don't get along with. But do you notice the order? It's righteousness and peace have kissed one another. In Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17, the Bible says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace. Not the work of peace shall be righteousness, but the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? When he says, listen, I'm going to give you my righteousness, what he's saying is, listen, I want to quiet your spirit down. And I want to put an assurance in there that will last forever. I'm going to give you righteousness and peace. And then that scripture found in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So what was God's promise to Abraham? Well, first of all, you see him make promises in chapter 12. You see him make more promises in chapter 15. But what we're talking about is the ones that he swore by an oath that come out of Genesis chapter 22. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, my wife preached an awesome message last week. Abraham has been asked to sacrifice Isaac. And he's got him on the altar. And he's about to plunge him with a knife. And then an angel of the Lord appeared from heaven. So this is the second time he's calling. That stopped Abraham from plunging the knife into his heart. But this is the second time now. And it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time, from heaven. Friends, let me tell you something. This is not Michael, and this is not Gabriel. This is Jesus. This angel they're talking about is Christ himself. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Watch what he says. Now here's the blessing. He said, indeed, I will greatly bless you. <laughs> and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and of the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their 
enemies. In your seed, he says, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In that seed, he's talking about Christ. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I'm going to be honest with you. Can I just be real with you? I've thought about this over the years. I quit thinking about it several years ago, but there for a while, I thought if God came down, if an angel came down and said to me, Mark, I want you to take that knife and I want you to plunge it into your beating heart as a sacrifice that some poor sinner would not have to die and go to hell. I said, God, I'd count it a privilege. I'd count it a privilege. And I'd say yes and amen. I truly mean that. I really do. If I knew that person had no hope except for that sacrifice of myself, I would do it. But I want to be honest with you. And I told the Lord this as we were dialoguing back and forth. I said, but God, if you told me to do that to one of my sons, one of my grandsons, one of my granddaughters, one of my daughters, if you asked me to do it to them, I would say, God, I cannot do it. So I, I tried to imagine what was on Abraham's mind and his heart. That the moment God spoke, he said, okay, Isaac, pack your things. We're heading off to Mount Moriah. That's an amazing story. We can't just skim over that and go, oh, Abraham took his son. They got the, they got the wood. They got the fire. They got the knife. They got all this stuff, but they don't have the, the land. You know, we can't just read over that. You've got to put yourself in the story one time. Become Abraham for a day, would you? And say, could you really do that? Really? Oh, friends, I'm going to be honest with you. If it was one of my kids or one of my grandkids versus 10 million other people, I would say to them, folks, you better get your heart right with Jesus because you're about to meet him. You are not getting my son. Would you do the same thing? Can I talk to the dads in here? Would you do the same thing? How about the moms? Would you, would you do the same thing? <laughs> You'd do the same thing, wouldn't you? Oh, man. Oh, Abraham must have been one cool cat. I would just love to be able to sit down with Abraham. He was probably just a common guy, a heart of faith. Man, he must have been one cool joker, though, man. I'd love to be able to sit down with him and just talk with Abraham around a campfire. But what does he have to do with you? What does he have to do with me? I mean, here's a guy that lived thousands of years ago. What has all that got to do with us? Because see, if you don't see yourself in this story, if you don't see yourself in this timeline, if you don't see yourself in this work of grace, listen, the Bible is there for our edification. Step over into Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, you'll see it. It says, if you belong to Christ. Can I get a witness? Do you belong to Christ? All right, so he's talking to us today, isn't he? He said, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Now, he just reached way back in the Old Testament and just resurrected what was on Abraham. He said, if you are in Christ, he said, then you are Abraham's seed. And he says, I like this part, he says, heirs. <laughs> in other words, you just inherited something. He said, you are heirs according to the promise. What was the promise? Verse 17, indeed, I will greatly bless you, he says. He said, I will greatly multiply your seed. He said, you shall possess the gate of your enemies. And he said, in your seed shall all the nations be blessed. I'm going to tell you something. The gospel of grace is taking ground.
Sometimes we just need to shut that news off because it just influences us the wrong way. I'm going to tell you something. The gospel of grace is catching fire across this world. It really is. And when I saw this in the scripture when, the, when it said, you shall possess the gate of your enemies. I said, Lord, how are we going to do that? How are we going to possess the gate of our enemies? Through the gospel of grace is how you're going to possess the gates of your enemies, the Lord said. You see, we don't come with artillery. We don't come with high-tech weapons. We come with a message of God's love and God's great grace. And it's with that that we take the gate of our enemies. We turn them into brothers and sisters in Christ. The certainty of God's promise to Abraham is the certainty of God's promise to you. It's the certainty of God's promise to me. It's the certainty of God's promise to anyone who's in Christ. We inherited the promises made to Abraham. Indeed, God said, I will greatly bless you. Amen. Abraham's covenant was a covenant of faith. Get that in your heart this morning. Abraham's covenant was a covenant of faith. Do you believe that? His covenant was a covenant of faith. What else could it have been? And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 8, watch how many times it said this. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations who are, whose architect and builder is God. <laughs> and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is as good as dead. That's so weird how they put that in there. From this one man, and he is as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. By faith four times. Is Abraham under a covenant of faith? That's all he's under. Abraham had a covenant of faith. And because of that covenant of faith, it began to release the promises of God. It began to release them in his life. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Almost 35,000 scriptures. The Old Testament has 929 of those chapters. The New Testament only 260. So the Old Testament is about four times the size of the New Testament. We're talking about faith. We're talking about the promises of God. If you take that simple word, faith, simple word, faith. If I would say to you, how many times do you think that word, faith, that simple word comes up in all of the Old Testament? Almost 25,000 scriptures. Is it twice? Is it 20 times? 200 times? 2,000 times? Or 20,000 times? Any guesses? It's twice. In all of those scriptures, faith only comes up two times in all of the Old Testament. I found that to be kind of strange. I never really paid attention to that until I was studying for this message. And then I walked out in the living room and I thought I was going to really get my wife on this one. I said, baby, how many times do you think a simple word like faith comes up in the Old Testament? 
She looked at me. She said, not very many. I said, you knew that? I thought it came up more often than that. Well, they use a word that's similar to faith. They use this word believed. And it's an equivalent to faith. I thought that was just astounding that Hebrews chapter 11 just got through saying, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, and yet faith is hardly mentioned. In fact, one of those scriptures comes out of Habakkuk in the second chapter where it says, the just shall live by faith. By faith. So, Abraham believed God, the Bible says, and it was through that word believed, which is faith. The Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and also in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. The Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant. In other words, it was not based upon Abraham's performance. It was held together by the oath of God simply because Abraham chose to believe God. And the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. We're in Genesis. Throughout my journey as a believer, I've experienced that the promises of God bring life. I'm going to tell you, they bring life. <laughs> I don't care what you have that may appear dead. You just start bathing yourself in the promises of God and you'll see things come back to life. The promises of God bring life. There's, there's scripture that we quote out of the New Testament called John 3.16. This is the equivalent of what Abraham was, the covenant, where the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, there's that word, in him, Christ, should not perish but have everlasting life. When we were on our way to church this morning, driving all those millions of miles on, on the way to church this morning, you know, I'm glad the snow is gone. I'm really glad that's gone. But it's not that pretty out right now. You know, at the end of a winter, it's kind of all burned up. and just It's not pretty. There's, but I noticed there was one tree that was still green. They call it an evergreen. Evergreen. What does it mean? It's forever green. Doesn't matter what season you're in, it's evergreen. And God gave us everlasting life. It doesn't matter what season you're in, you have everlasting life. And I heard the Lord say to me a day or two ago, He said, you notice I didn't just give you an extension on your life? I'm thinking, you know what, Lord? Any prison in the United States could extend your life. You, they can't give you eternal life. You gave me eternal life. God is into the eternal. He's an eternal being. And he gave me eternal life. And I know it and I, I love it. This is an experiential scripture because you've got to embrace the scripture. He says you've got to believe. You've got to just believe in me and I'm going to give you eternal life. God so loved the world. God so loved you. God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have ever Lasting, oh man, may I just have my own little party. Everlasting life that excites me. We're talking about believing in Jesus. We're talking about the certainty of God's promise. And that promise is found in nobody else other than Christ alone. Christ alone. Then when we move out of Genesis, it doesn't take us very long. We just step over into Exodus, right? Genesis, then Exodus. Now what we find is they're under a new covenant. This Mosaic Covenant, friends, I'm thankful I didn't live back then because I'm telling you what, the, the Mosaic Covenant would just wear you out. We're under the Mosaic Covenant now. This is a very conditional covenant. God's only going to bless 
when you've got good performance. But if you've got bad days, you're going to get cursed. In fact, that's the way it worked. Now, why did God do that? Because they asked for it. It wasn't God's idea. It was theirs. They said, listen, we're able. We're able to, to obey all the rules. You just put the rules out there. We'll show you. We'll keep them. They broke them before the sun set the first day. I will bless you if your performance is perfect. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, the Bible says, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, I am giving you today, all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Did you hear that? Now, which covenant do you like better? Do you like Abraham's covenant or Moses's? He said, listen, if you don't obey all of them, the curses are going to come upon you. Man, the new covenant is an unconditional covenant. Our blessings, our covenant is based upon Jesus' righteousness. Our covenant is based upon His finished work. Our covenant is based upon the holiness of Jesus. Our covenant is based upon His intercession. Our covenant is based upon His grace. Do you remember that it's righteousness? Remember when I was making that point? It's righteousness and then peace. Righteousness and then peace. And that's what you see in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 says the same thing. It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified means to be declared righteous. So it literally reads, therefore, having been declared righteous, the result of that is peace with God. It's righteousness and then peace. So we see in the new covenant, we see Paul telling us, reminding us that it's, listen, you get justified by faith. You become righteous, declared righteous by faith. And as a result, you'll have peace with God. Did you know that an ape can cleverly imitate the action of a human being? They use them in commercials all the time, chimpanzees, monkeys. They can cleverly imitate the actions of a human being. I remember a commercial that used to play years ago. I don't even remember what it was for. I think it was for a hotel. But it showed this chimpanzee in their nice little setting and he sat down in the chair, and he had his little reading glasses on, and he had the newspaper, and he picked up the newspaper, and he's looking through the newspaper, turning the pages, and after he looks at it for a little while, he reaches over on his little stand, he gets his little drink, takes a little drink, puts it back down, goes back, and, and, and the essence of the commercial said, stand at our place, well, it'd kind of make you almost feel like you're human. <laughs> that was the essence of the commercial. You can take a monkey, and you can, he, he can imitate a human being, but let me say this, in the process of him imitating a human being, if he became a human being, it would not be by his effort of acting like a human being. It would be by virtue of an act of God. Would you agree with that? You don't go from a monkey to a man. I'm sorry, you don't go from a monkey to a man unless it's an act of God. God can turn anything into anything, but you don't do it just simply by acting like that. So here's the point of that. An unrighteous person does not become righteous simply by acting righteous. But the good news for us is a righteous person doesn't become unrighteous because we act unrighteous. That's the beauty of the scripture. Why? Because we have an unconditional covenant with Christ. Here's an amazing scripture. That's tucked away in Matthew chapter 26, verse 72. Peter has denied Christ. He did it three times. But on the third time, 
Did you know he did it like this? And again, he denied, the Bible says, with an oath. Whoa, he's really crossed the line. He's not only said, I don't know him, but he said, I swear to God, I never met him before. He took an oath. Remember I said an oath is not something you entered into lightly. When you said, I, you've got my word on this, I swear on this thing here. This is what Peter said. He said, I do not know the man. Let me tell you something. No matter how crazy our lives can be sometimes, no matter what situation we can find ourselves into, your actions and your words do not undo the righteousness of God. Because when Jesus was crucified, the first person he came to was Peter. He was the first person, the one who said, on an oath, I don't know you? Man, how blessed is that? That Jesus would say, where's Peter? I got to go find Peter. That's precious, isn't it? But early in my Christian walk, I, I made promises to God. I just said, God, I promise, I, I honestly, I, I swear I'll never do that again. And I found myself doing it again. I was trying to learn how to love him and let him love me. That probably never happened to any of you guys. But I mean, I did that. For a long time, I felt bad about this. Like, wow, I, I swore to God I would never do that. And I did it again, or I said it, or I thought this, or whatever. God, am I, are we still okay? <laughs> Matthew chapter 26, verse 72. And again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. Yet he was the first one that Jesus came after. That is just precious to me. Therefore, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, what Paul is not saying is that faith without its characteristic works. He said, it's, you don't have faith without characteristic works is what he's saying. But that this kind of faith justifies us without the work of the law. Justification, the Bible says, does not require the works of the law but it does require a living faith. You step into justification through a living faith, the Bible says. And then it performs the work. In Romans chapter 3, verses 20, beginning at verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. <laughs> to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In other words, for the person who puts their faith in Jesus. It literally, when you look at the word believeth, it means to put your trust in. When the Bible says that whosoever believeth in him, it literally means to put your trust in Jesus. Not mental knowledge, it's the heart. And the Apostle Paul asks this question. He says, where then is boasting? Boasting is bragging. It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No! Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
A person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It almost sounds too good to be true. But it's true. Why? Because we have a blood covenant of promise through Jesus. Let me close with this thought. The power of the blood covenant. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story between Jonathan and David. But around chapter 18 is where you see Jonathan decides to cut a covenant with David. The word covenant literally means to cut with blood. So Jonathan, who is Saul's son, David has been anointed king, but Saul stepped in ahead of him, and Saul is king. And David honors that, even though it's burning in his heart to be king. And he makes good friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, probably similar age. And Jonathan came to him one day and said, let's cut a covenant. I want you to see what a covenant, cutting a covenant looked like. They would grab hands like this. And they would take a knife and they would cut across their wrists like this. And friends, I'm going to tell you, this wasn't a superficial cut. This was a deep cut. I'll tell you why in just a moment. But underneath that cut, they put a cup. And the blood would drip down into that cup. And many times they had a loaf of bread right there so that they could break bread together too. And when that blood went down into the cup, they would mix in some wine, and each of them would drink each other's blood. And they would eat from that loaf of bread. Oh, does this look familiar? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the communion. Jesus said, drink my blood and eat my body, eat my flesh. They would cut across their arms, their forearms, their wrists, and they would cut deep enough so that it left a big scar so that as they walk through life, someone could look at your wrist and they would immediately go, he's in covenant with somebody. I thought about that last night as I was still looking at the scriptures. And I just wondered if that's what was going on in Thomas's heart. You see, Thomas wasn't present when Jesus showed himself to the disciples. He came later. And they told him, hey, Jesus was here. You missed the boat, buddy. He was here. Oh, he couldn't have been here. And, and Jesus comes back again. But before he did, he said, Thomas said, listen, I won't believe it unless I see the scars. Unless I see the scars, the nail prints in his hands and his feet, and I can thrust my hand into his side. He said, you've got to show me some scars. See, because Thomas was aware. Uh, we're talking New Testament here, but they're still under the Old Covenant. In the Gospels, you're still under the Covenant, the Old Covenant. It was not until Jesus died that the New Covenant came in. It wasn't when he was born. The new covenant came when he died and when he rose again. And so I was wondering this last night if, if Thomas was basically saying, if I see that covenant sign, then I'll believe it. Not only will I believe that he rose again, but he rose for me. He rose for me. Oh, man. When you cut a covenant, it wasn't just an agreement between the two of you that I'll take care of you and you can take care of me. But it was for the whole family. It was, listen, I'll take care of your whole family. Your family has just become my family when I drank your blood. Your family just became mine. My family became yours. That's powerful imagery. Our family just enlarged itself 
it was binding until both parties died. And so now you have this man named Saul. Saul was doing fine with David in his army, if you will, until David killed Goliath. And Saul thought that was pretty cool until David made it into town one day and the song started playing. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And the Bible says he became very jealous of David. And after that, there was this love-hate relationship. He was always trying to kill David, throwing spears at him, trying to set him up, trying to kill him all the time. Always after David. And Jonathan, because he's got a covenant with David, is always warning, hey, daddy's coming after you tonight. Better not be where you were last night. Daddy knows that spot. Daddy's coming after you tonight. Jonathan was always warning him. Because Jonathan had a covenant. And a covenant says, I protect you. A covenant says, we're family. And so, Saul is engaged in battle one day. And the Bible says, in the last scriptures of 1 Samuel, that they were overtaken. And Saul and his three sons, including Jonathan, all died in the same day on Mount Gilboa in that battle. All of them died. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. And when the nanny who was taking care of Mephibosheth found out that Saul had died, she picked up that little boy, he was probably two, three, four years of age, and she began to flee because it was very common when the new king came in to kill all the other king's family. And she, did, she was in love with that little boy. And so the Bible says she began to run with him, and she tripped. And she came down on the little boy and broke both of his ankles. They didn't have doctors like we got doctors today. Didn't have the way to set those ankles. Didn't have any way to put pins in those ankles. And he grew up with twisted limbs. She went and hid in a remote section called Lodibar. What is Lodabar? <laughs> I've heard a minister say below the bar. <laughs> Lodabar. It was a remote place. And then 10 years later, David became king of Israel. And he was walking around in his palace one night. And he thought, man, I've got this covenant with Jonathan. But there's nobody left in the family to bless. And he called Ziba. See, Ziba used to serve as one of the servants for Saul. Now he was serving for David. And he said, is there anybody left in the household of Saul, of Jonathan, that I can bless? He said, there's one guy. Now he's grown up. He's an adult. He lives in Lodabar. He said, go get him. And when those chariots friends showed up to get Mephibosheth, believe me, he thought he was a dead duck. And they brought him to the palace. And he fell prostrate, the Bible says. And when he finally got up, he, he began to worship King David. And David reminded him of the covenant he had with his daddy. And he said to him, forever you will dine at my table. I'm going to bless you, Mephibosheth, because I have a covenant and I'm a covenant keeper. I'm going to bless you. And the first thing he did is he said, Ziba, by the way, I want you to see your new boss. You and your 15 sons will become his servants. And he had 20 other servants too, so there was 36 men 
that suddenly, can you see Mephibosheth going, what is going on? Mephibosheth has got this attitude, and he even looks at David and said, why do you look on me like this? He said, I'm a dead dog. And a couple years ago, I heard the Lord say this to me when I was looking at those scriptures. I heard the Lord say, even when your walk is less than perfect, I want you to remember something. I have a covenant with you. I have a covenant with you. When your walk and your talk, his talk wasn't good, was it? I'm a dead dog. When your walk and your talk is less than perfect, I want you to remember something. You can always eat at my table. You can always come and dine with me. I'm going to bless you. Expect the blessing. He said, surely I will bless you. My closing thought. There was a house that caught on fire. And a little boy worked his way out of a window and up on the roof. The daddy had gotten out of the house. It was dark. And as the daddy was looking up on this two-story home, the boy was up there crying and just so frightened. And daddy was pleading with him, jump son, jump son. But the smoke was billowing and the flames were shooting up and it was just so dark. And he said, I, I can't, daddy. He said, yes, you can. And he kept yelling for him to jump. But the boy just kept protesting. I can't, daddy. He said, I can't see you, daddy. I can hear you, but I can't see you. And the father replied, but I can see you. That's all that matters. I can see you. That's the way it is with God. When we walk through times and we say, I can't see daddy. I can't feel daddy. Daddy says, it's okay. Remember, this is about trusting me. You can trust me. Just jump. I can see you. I'll catch you. At the end of that China missionary's life, Hudson Taylor, he wrote these words. He said, I am so weak that I can hardly write. He said, I cannot read my Bible. He said, I cannot even pray. I can only lie still in God's arms like a little child and trust. How could you write something like that? I want to tell you how you can write something like that. Because he was certain of God's promise. Amen. Father, I want to thank you for your great grace. I want to thank you for this covenant of grace. I want to thank you, Father, that I see Jesus and I see the heart, your heart so such an awesome heart. I see it in the Bible. I see it in the Word of God, and it so excites me. Father, you have demonstrated your great love for us. You have demonstrated, you've, you've put it in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. I want to thank you, Father, for this covenant that we have by faith. We stepped into it, and even when we can't see you, even when we can't hear you as well as we've heard you in the past, even when we walk through times like that, you can say, it's okay. I can still see you. I can still hear you. Father, I speak great grace over these wonderful people of God. Nothing is too difficult for my God. God, what an awesome God you are. Father, in Jesus' name, I have stood.
and I have preached what you have given me. And I just declare these hearts have received it with great grace. In Jesus' precious, precious name, amen.